All right, if you want to take your Bibles with me, we're going to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have finished looking at elders, and this morning we're going to read the next section of 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 8, about deacons. And we'll spend some time this morning looking at what God's Word says about deacons. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. I do want to wish all of our fathers a happy Father's Day. And we have, I don't want to call them past fathers because you're still fathers if your children are still on earth, but they're not at home. Uh, I know a little bit of that. I still have a few kids at home. Um, Some of us are future fathers and some are present fathers. So we're glad to have all of our fathers here. And when we're, what we're reading this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is about deacons, but as men of God, it gives us a model to strive to live by. So although it's not a Father's Day message necessarily, this could be a good challenge for us as fathers. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, starting at verse 8. And it says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at this passage this morning and see what God has for us. Father, we just ask for your presence now. We ask for your leading and guiding through your Spirit. I pray that as we look into your Word and as we study this passage and what your Word says about deacons, that the principles might not just be there for someone else, but that there's principles here that apply to each one of us, and especially as fathers today. I pray that you would challenge our hearts to be the examples and the models of Christianity that we need to be for our children and for others in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would just convict us where we need to be convicted and teach us the things that you want us to learn. Use me now as your instrument. I pray that you would give me strength of word and body and mind so that you, your word might be proclaimed. Lord, speak through me, I pray, that we might hear from you today, that you might get the glory for everything that's done and said today. And we'll give you the praise now during this time and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So as we have finished looking at the elders as the part of a leadership of the church, the elders have a special place in the church, not that they are more spiritual or holier than other people, um, but that God has called them to a specific purpose in leading through teaching and through example. We come to the second group of people, which are deacons, and the deacons here um, are kind of a second set of people that God is talking about within the church that are part of a leadership group, okay? So as we come into 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we get down to verse 8, it starts with this word likewise, and it says, likewise must the deacons be of good report, I'm sorry, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. 
So we look at these qualifications for deacons. What's interesting, if you pay attention to what we just read, is that what we have is a qualification for deacons, and yet there's no function of deacons mentioned. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, this is the only place that it specifically talks about deacons in this depth, and nowhere else in the New Testament does it ever speak this much about deacons, nor does it ever give a list of actual functions of deacons in the church. So we have to use Scripture to figure out what God is telling us about this particular office, okay? In fact, if you go through the Bible, if you go through the New Testament, obviously this is a New Testament office in the church, there's very little mention of deacons as a whole and as a position in the church apart from 1 Timothy 3, where we read this morning, and one or two other verses in the New Testament. We have very little to go on when it talks about deacons. And so we have to kind of be diligent in understanding what God is talking about when he talks about deacons here. Obviously, it's an office of the church because it has qualifications. It follows the office of elder. And so it fits in that designated office that God has given the church as far as positions of leadership. Now, we do have an introduction in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to go there in just a second. And that tells us that in Acts chapter 6, the apostles appointed men literally to serve tables, okay? It had to do with food. But other than those passages, 1 Timothy, there's a brief reference in Philippians chapter 1 to deacons, and then in Acts chapter 6, the reference to men who served in the church, there's really a whole lot there's not a whole lot else in Scripture. So we have to ask this question. If deacon is an official position of the church, defined by these specific qualifications, which we're going to get to in just a minute, how are we supposed to know what they're supposed to do? And obviously the answer is to look at Scripture. Okay? So we ask this question. How do we know what they're supposed to do? One of the problems that we encounter as we talk about this position of deacons is that as you look at different churches and how they designate deacons and how deacons function within the church, there is a gamut of differences and different responsibilities and even differences in how they look at the position of deacon from church to church. So there's such a divergence of how deacons are defined and how they're used that there's not a consistency across the board today in churches that we can look at as a basis or a foundation and say, okay, this is kind of what they're supposed to be. In fact, in some Baptist churches or many Baptist churches, you will have a setup in the leadership where you have one pastor and then the deacon board or the deacons function actually as elders within the church, but they're called deacons. So that's one practice that churches use deacons for. It's almost kind of to function as elders, and many Baptist churches do this. In other denominations, you look at deacons, and they're basically no more than maintenance men and janitors. That's, that's their sum total of responsibility in the church. And so we have just this divergence of how deacons are appointed and used in the church that is very difficult to say, yeah, this is exactly what a deacon is supposed to do. In some churches, it's so difficult to become a deacon, in fact, that um, almost no one can become appointed a deacon, and they'll use very strictly these qualifications here and almost um, appoint them as an elder or a sub-elder. But the point that I'm trying to make is, because we have very little in Scripture to define this often, 
this office, it's hard for us to say, yes, a deacon is supposed to do these specific things in the church, okay? And I don't want to focus on that so much. I want to focus on the broad spectrum of what a deacon is and why he's called to this position. And then obviously these qualifications that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, because he is part of the leadership of the church. But the fact that there's no specific um, duties, yet there are specific qualifications, means that we have to take this seriously. So it should be something that the church needs to have. Here's the important point, and I want you to remember this as we talk about deacons today, both what, where they came from, what they are, and, and the qualifications for them. The fact that we have a list of qualifications here, but no specific duties listed, makes this point very clear. It is more important what a man is than what he does, as far as leadership is concerned. Now, you may go, well, you know, that, that's, I understand what you're saying, but it is important what he does. And that is true. But as far as his specific function in the church, and we're talking about this position of deacon, if one church defines the deacon's functions one way, another defines their functions another way, that really doesn't matter because we're not given a whole lot of substance in Scripture as far as specifics. What matters is that the men qualify based on their moral character and on these other qualifications that we have in Scripture here. So it's more important for God what the man is spiritually than what he does. And that's the same principle that we need to apply to all of us. Our activity does not define us as far as God's concerned. What defines us as Christians is our heart and what kind of person we are. Now, from within, Christ says, will come out all the things that we do. So what we do is a reflection somewhat of what's inside. But a lot of people will pretend and they'll put up this presentation or performance so people will think they're good Christians when God knows inside they're not even close to what he's called them to be as far as being holy and dedicated to him. So the point we want to remember this morning is that, especially in this function of deacon, it is more important what the man is than what he does in the church, okay? In other words, your character is more important than your activity. And if a man does not meet these qualifications, then he shouldn't be appointed in any position, whether it's an elder or a deacon. And that's why we have these qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3. So we have to consider his spiritual maturity and integrity as the first priority when considering someone for this position. This is true of elders and it's true of deacons. And so he must meet the qualifications. Just like an elder, he must meet the qualifications. Now, before we answer the question about what a deacon is, let me share a little background information to help us understand this position of deacon a little bit better, okay? Because there's a lot of, uh, um, in churches, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of substance that people want to throw out there and say, well, isn't this deacon, isn't this talking about deacons in, in the church? I'm going to try to give you enough substance so we understand where the Bible's coming from, okay? First of all, the word deacon in English is not actually a translation, it's what we call transliteration. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. Sounds like deacon, right? Diakonos. And the reason it's deacon is because all they did when they translated the Bible was take the Greek word diakonos and then kind of make it sound a little more English using English alphabet and English sounds. So from diakonos, we have deacon. 
And literally it means one who serves. That's what diakonos means, a servant. Okay? There's a whole family of Greek words that refer to this position and function, not specifically a deacon in a church, but a servant. Okay? Diakonos, I just told you, that's a servant. Diakonia, that's the service that a servant performs. And then there's, diak I'm sorry, I'm going to mess this up. Diakoneo, okay? They're so close, I always get them confused. Diakoneo, which means to serve. That's the verb form. So we have the servant, the service, and to serve. And these words are used all throughout Scripture. In fact, if you look at in the New Testament alone, there's about a hundred occurrences or more of these words referring to service and servants. Now, the root meaning of all of these words actually has to do with serving food. That's the common occurrence in Greek. And actually, that's the common occurrence in Scripture as well. Let me give you some examples. In John chapter 2, you can read about the wedding at Cana. You remember this because this is where Jesus turned water into wine. And the word diakonos is used to refer to the servants that filled up the jugs with water before Jesus turned it to wine. The servants that Mary turned to and said, do whatever he says. They were called diakonos. They're not deacons in a church because there is no church at this point. They're servants. So the word diakonos literally just means a servant. In Luke chapter 4, after Christ heals Peter's, mo Peter's mother-in-law, it says she gets up and ministers to them or waits on them. And the inference is she gets food ready and feeds them. Okay, so again, we have this serving food idea. The word is diakoneo. That's the service that is performed by a servant, okay? She is waiting on them. In John chapter 12, when Jesus eats supper with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, right after he raises Lazarus from the dead, they all go to Mary and Martha's house. And Martha is preparing a meal, and she's serving them. And the word that uses to describe Martha's service is diakonao, service, okay? The service of a servant, at least two other places in the Gospels, you can go to these Greek words that, we, that come from or related to this word deacon in the English language, diakono. And it basically tells you that there's servants who are serving food or taking care of people in some way. So this idea that the word specifically diakonos in the Bible is talking about a deacon, every time it appears, actually it's very infrequently that that's the case. Most of the time, the word diakonos and all the related words to it just means someone who is serving someone else. Most of the time, it's talking about serving food. Okay? That's where we get our word deacon from. And you'll see that in a minute. And it will make sense to you. Because we're introduced to the idea of deacons in Acts chapter 6, which we're going to look at in just a minute. And if you remember, what was the issue that the deacons or these men were appointed to do? The specific job. The apostles had to deal with an issue, and it was about serving food. And so they chose seven men in Acts chapter 6. Okay? Now, beyond that, there are several times in Scripture and in the New Testament when Jesus refers to this word diakonos and diakonia, diakoneo, using these words to refer to service in general. In fact, in John chapter 12, 
Jesus says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there, ye, there shall also my servant, diakonos, be. If any man serve me, diakoneo, um, him will my father honor. So Jesus is talking about general service to God here not serving food specifically. So it broadens the meaning of this idea of service. And in fact, in Luke chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, Christ refers and, and uses this word diakoneo and diakonia to refer to both serving food and as an example of general service to God. He says, But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, he that is chief, as he that doth serve. That's the servant who serves food. He says, For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth. In other words, he's asking, which one is greater in society? Which one is considered a higher position? The person eating at the table, or the person serving the food to them? And he says, basically, we all understand in our society, it's the person who's sitting at the table who's higher, therefore the servant is lower, is humbled. But he uses that as an example. And he says, is not he that sitteth at meat? In other words, the one sitting is higher. He said, but I am among you as he that serveth. In other words, he was referring to himself as that lower class, the one who has lowered himself to serve others. Okay, so we get the idea from the New Testament about this word diakonos and the other related terms that have to do with the service. And in fact, all through the Acts and Paul's epistles, we see the word diakoneo, that's the service, translated as different words. You'll come across translations in different verses that talk about service, ministry, support, and even administration, all of them come from this word diakoneo, which means service. And the word appears, as I mentioned, over a hundred times in the New Testament. Here's the thing. Although we see this word so many times in the New Testament, very few of them refer to the specific office of deacon. It's generally talking about service in general, serving other people. And having a mind of humility that allows you to serve other people. Now, some will argue that there are indirect references to deacons in Scripture. And I'm going to just take a second to go over these. Just because if you hear them, this, these are not talking about deacons specifically. In Romans chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, Whoever has the gift of serving, that's diakoneo, let him serve. But Paul's talking about spiritual gifts here, not an office. Okay? So that, in Romans 12, is not talking about deacons. It's talking about people who have the gift of serving. It's a specific gift that the Holy Spirit gives us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16, talks about the household of Stephanus and how they devoted, this is the, the verse, it says they devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And the word ministry is diakonia. But I don't think it's saying that his entire family were designated as deacons. Okay? It's a general service within the church. And then in Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about the speaking gifts, it talks about apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And it says, we have them so that they can equip the saints for the work of ministry or service. That word ministry, diakoneo. Okay? But it doesn't mean that the reason we have pastors and teachers is so that all of us have to become deacons. It means we are all built up to be able to serve 
in the church and serve other people. And that's what Christian maturity looks like. It's in a willingness to become like Christ, Philippians 2 says, to lower ourselves so that we can serve other people. Okay? Now, there's lots of other passages that link this word diakonos, or the work of diakonos, diakonia, with specific people. But again, in almost every case, this word in the New Testament is referring to general physical and spiritual service as delivered by servants to others. Okay? So, what I'm saying is this. Deacon is an official position. We just read that in 1 Timothy 3. But there's not a lot about it. It gives us the general idea about service that's related to this word deacon. And so if we're going to define the word deacon, then here's the best definition. It's someone who is dedicated to service. Now what service? Whatever needs to be done. That's the whole point. Okay? Now, there's one exception to this rule where a person is actually named a diakonos or a deacon in a certain church. This is in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And if you want to look at this, I'm going to show you, you may be surprised. And we're going to talk about this later next week. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sancria. The word servant there is diakonos. And here she's actually designated as a diakonos of the church of Sancria, which means she's not just a general servant, she's named as a deacon. And you go, wait a minute, she's a woman. Yeah, she's a woman. Okay? And we'll discuss that next week as we look at women's ministry in the church. Okay? But... That's the only reference specifically that names a person as a deacon or deaconess in this case in a church of God. Now let's go to Acts chapter 6. I want you to turn over there because this is the main substance that we use when we talk about the functions of deacons. And I want you to see what Acts chapter 6 has to have or, or has to tell us about deacons. And I want to point out some things that it doesn't tell us that sometimes we assume is there. Okay? Acts chapter 6, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Acts chapter 6, this is early, early, early in the church, about 31 A.D., um, maybe a year, not even a year after Christ was ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 6, the church is just getting started, and it says in verse 1, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. We're going to stop there just so I can explain the situation. This is generally the church at Jerusalem and the people around Jerusalem. We're talking about a time of Passover here. It's, a, like I said, about a year after Christ died and rose and went back to heaven. So we're at the Passover time. There's tens of thousands of Jews coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And many of them are now being converted. And they are coming to faith in Christ, realizing that he's the Messiah. And they're joining the church. At this same time, there's a famine going around. And so there's very little food. So many people in the church are suffering, and the church took it upon themselves to actually distribute, collect first, and then distribute food to those people who were in need. And this, uh, this problem arose because 
this practice of collecting food and distributing to people in need actually was a practice that the Jews did in the synagogue. And the church adopted it. So they're basically doing what the Jews did all the time. And remember, the, the church is mostly Jews at this point. So it's not a huge change for them. So they're distributing food, but they're focusing mainly on Jewish widows. They're delivering food to widows, and they're mainly focusing on Jewish widows. And the Greek people in the church are saying, well, the, 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 the leaders here are ignoring our widows. They're not getting food. And so the twelve disciples, in verse 2, then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and, and wisdom, whom we may, we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the, the, the uh, disciples here, and we're talking about the twelve apostles at this point, they have a solution. They say, okay, let's appoint seven men to specifically address this issue of the, the Hellenistic. Even Some of them were Jews, but they had been Hellenized. They became more Greek in their culture. So it's not just Greeks. It's other people who were living specifically in the Greek world, in the Greek culture, and they've, been, uh, and they've adopted to that. But it's these women that are being neglected. Now... The apostles say, let's choose seven men. If you look at the names of the seven men, which are listed here in verse 5, all of them are Greek. It doesn't mean all of them are Greeks. It just means all of them have Greek names, which means they've been Hellenized or accommodated to the Greek culture, which is what happened to a lot of the Jews during this time period. Okay? So all of these men have Greek names. That means they come from a Hellenistic background. They're appointed to make sure the Greek or the Hellenistic widows get food. Now, that's the solution that the disciples or the apostles um, give. And so the people actually choose seven men, and it says they meet these qualifications. In verse 3, it says, Look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, here's another interesting thing. We have these seven names. This is the last time you will ever hear of most of them in Scripture. They are listed here in Acts chapter 6, and you never hear about them again, with two exceptions. In Acts chapter 7, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 6, later, you see Stephen. And all of us know about Stephen, right? The first martyr. Stephen. And what is he doing? If you go down in verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now, is that what you would normally classify a regular deacon's job as? See, and this is where the problem comes in. 
Because we have the, one of the very first deacons, and then the first thing we read about him is that he's out doing miracles and wonders and, and advancing the kingdom of God through his preaching. And you, if you keep reading in, verse, in chapter 7, you see that Peter preaches this salvation message to the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priests. And that's what causes him to be killed. So he's not just a deacon who's cleaning the church. What we're talking about here, specifically these seven men, are men, as it's, said, as it's described, who are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom and of honest report, who now represent the church, at least for this specific instance, in this way in serving. Okay? The other one that you will find, apart from Stephen, is if you go over one more chapter to chapter 8, and his name is Philip. And he is the man who is taken to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. And he explains the prophets to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch is saved. And then he baptizes the eunuch. And then it says the Holy Spirit whisked him away and took him away. And then you don't hear about him again at all until you get to Acts chapter 21, where there's a very brief message where it talks about Paul visiting the house of Philip the evangelist. Now, why doesn't it call him Philip the deacon? Because he's an evangelist. That's his work that God has called him to. And yet God used him at this point in Acts chapter 6 to serve in this specific area as a deacon. Okay? Nowhere else in the New Testament will you ever see these names again of any of these men after Acts chapter 8. So we don't know necessarily if this is the institution of deacons in the church it is a need that needed to be met and god appointed through the apostles seven men to meet that need okay now we take this as kind of the forerunner of deacons because this becomes the example of what deacons are supposed to be now when you look at it from that perspective and especially when you consider who Stephen and Philip were, it completely changes your perspective of deacons. They're not just janitors in the church. Okay? And that's why we get when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are these qualifications. In Acts chapter 6, these men took care of a specific need that was necessary. It doesn't say they continued doing that for the long term. It doesn't tell us what they did other than Philip and Stephen in their preaching. Okay? So we see Acts chapter 6 as kind of an example and a forerunner of deacons. But here's the interesting thing about, first, or about Acts chapter 6. If you look at this passage, we say, well, this is where deacons are defined. They're not really defined at all, because the word deacon, in its sense, according to these men, doesn't appear here. In fact, there's only three times these words diakonos and diakonia appear. Verse 1 in chapter 6 of, of Acts, it says that in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily Diakonia, ministrations. Now, we don't have deacons yet, and yet diakonia is this service. In verse 2, it says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and, what's the word? Serve tables. Diakonia. 
So that's talking about the apostles, not about the deacons or about these men. And then in verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this diaconeo, service. Okay? And it's serving tables, literally, taking food to people. So this is where we get our idea of deacon. And Acts chapter 6 gives us kind of a preface, preface for deacons, but it doesn't specifically define them or even name them here. It gives us the name of seven men who served, but it's not necessarily saying, okay, here's where the office of deacon was instituted. Now, you've got that background. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, okay? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have the qualifications. Here's some background about 1 Timothy chapter 3. This was written 30 years later after Acts chapter 6. The church now has been established. There are multiple congregations all over the known world at this point. And they've encountered all kinds of difficulties and challenges. And one of them, I suppose, is how to deal with the service that has to be done within each congregation. Now, the seven men that were appointed in Jerusalem met that specific need when it was there. They're not called deacons, but they give us the idea of what deacons are. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, now Paul calls them specifically deacons, giving that position a title. And with that title comes qualifications. And so we have elders that are now appointed in the churches, not just the apostles. We have all kinds of congregations that have sprung up, both Jewish and Greek and mixed and in between. And now there's this need for service within the church to make sure all of the physical functions of the church get done. And so Paul comes here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and he says, here's what deacons are supposed to be. And he's not talking about what their service is. He's talking about their qualifications. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've already spent six weeks looking at the qualifications of elders. These are very much the same. And they encompass the same areas. And if we look at these verses, starting at verse 8, um, it starts by saying the deacons must be grave. Okay? We start with their moral character. The word grave here is very similar to the word that we looked at when we talked about elders, when it talks about sober. It means to be honorable, to be honest, to be serious in mind and character, and not silly or flippant about important matters. And this would be important, for instance, if um, you have a serious issue in the church that needs to be dealt with, and you have a guy who is a deacon, and all he wants to do is joke about it. Okay, that's not the appropriate time. Now, it's not saying you can't have a sense of humor and you can't be jovial, but it's saying when it comes to the work of God, you are serious about it. That's what this word grave means. And it also carries the, 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 the uh, aspect of being honorable and honest. I mean, would you want somebody in leadership in the church that would lie to you all the time? You know, how are you? I'm great. Okay, we just say that, right? Are we really great? Yeah, we all know, uh, back in here, no, I'm not doing that great. The Bible tells us, confess your faults one to another, pray for each other. Now, I'm not going to give you a lesson about lying today, okay? But, this means honest. We should be honest with each other. Not complaining about everything, that's the, the other side of that coin, but we need to be honest. We need to be honest about 
our situation. We need to be honest about the conditions. We need to be honest about what God's doing in our life. Okay? And that's what this word grave is talking about. Serious about living life as a believer the way God told us to. So that's the first qualification. The second one is not double-tongued. We see in 1 Timothy 3. Not double-tongued. This means, and, and you can get the picture here, right? Talking out of both sides of their mouth. It means they're a hypocrite or they're a slanderer or a gossip. They say one thing to one person, then they go over here and, oh, man, you should hear what this guy said. And, oh, man, is he in, his life is messed up. And then they go back over here and they go, oh, well, you know what? I had this great time of fellowship with this person, but he's got so many problems. And Okay, that's what this is talking about, not double-tongued. That's one application. They're, they can't be a gossip. They can't be somebody who says one thing to one person and something else to another person. And we saw this when we looked at the character of elders. They have to be consistent, both in their, their lives and in their Christianity. Okay? So not double-tongued. The positive opposite side of this would be single-minded in that they proclaim the truth in love. Now, again, I'm not going to give you a lesson on truth in love. But it's one thing to tell the truth. It's another thing to tell the truth in love. And if I walked up to somebody and said, you know, I have to be honest with you, I think you're ugly. Okay, is that loving? Not really. Okay, so speaking the truth in love is saying the things that need to be said, but then employing the principle of love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's not my own sin, it's not my fault that I'm ugly, right? I can blame my mother, I can blame God, that's the way God made me. But... For me to just come out and insult somebody just because I want to tell the truth, okay, that's not the truth in love. And that's what this is talking about, not double-tongued, speaking the truth consistently, but doing it in love, okay? Moving on, and we have two right here that we looked at as far as elders are concerned, not given to much wine and not greedy of filthy lucre. Again, exactly the same as for elders. And the, the one about given to much wine is basically referring to being controlled by alcohol or some other substance where it affects your functioning, okay? If you are dependent upon alcohol for your well-being or for your life or you have to have it, that's a problem. And that's why Paul says, not given to much wine. And I will mention here, just like I mentioned in elders, it's not a specific prohibition. It doesn't say you can't have any. It says you're not defined by it. Not given to much wine. That's not your reputation. Okay? And then the other one is not greedy of filthy lucre. Again, the same as the elders. Not motivated by money or profit in, in some personal way. It doesn't have to actually be money as far as cash is concerned, but it can be some benefit that I derive from doing whatever I'm doing. Okay? And so the idea of this not greedy of filthy lucre obviously has to do with living for money. If that's the way someone comes across to you, that's a, a problem here as far as deacons are concerned. But it carries the attitude of humility. Right? I'm willing to serve even if I don't get paid. Now, as I mentioned for elders, if someone comes in as a candidate for an office and their first question is, how much do I get paid to do this? That is a problem for me because the Bible is very clear, not greedy, filthy lucre, not motivated by money to serve. Deacons usually don't get paid. But 
In most churches, it is the deacons who are handling a lot of the money issues. Therefore, they have to be trustworthy. Okay? And this is buried into this not greedy of filthy lucre. So we have these qualifications here about moral character. They, they have to be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. There's this moral character, just like we saw with the elders. But then it goes on, and the second is the test of, of spiritual maturity in verse 9. It says, holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience. Now, the mystery of the faith is basically everything that had been revealed about salvation. Remember, this is kind of brand new to these people. They're only 30 years into this. They're still trying to figure out doctrine. They're still trying to figure out, they don't even have a Bible yet, except for the Old Testament. They've got some letters written by the apostles. But they don't have everything we have. So they're still trying to figure things out. But they understood the basics of salvation, and that's what Paul's saying here. They have to hold to these things adamantly. And what he's talking about is that salvation is found in Christ alone. It's not found through conformity to the law. And remember, that was a huge argument for the first 50 years of the church between the Jews and the, and the, the, the Christians. Okay? So salvation is found only in Christ, and it can't be obtained through works. That it now also includes Jews and Gentiles. And again, this was a problem at the beginning of the church. Paul went into detail in Ephesians chapter 2, and he talks specifically to the Gentiles saying, yes, God has brought you into the church along with all of these Jews who, remember, began the church in Jerusalem. And in verse 18 of Ephesians 2, he says, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Talking to Greeks and Jews, or Gentiles and Jews. So the church is a blend now. That's extremely important. And that we are now made perfect through sanctification. We are complete in him, Colossians tells us. It's through Christ that we become Christians. And our life is in him. And that we are called to be witnesses of Christ to the world around us. So all of these things are basics as far as salvation. But these men had to hold to this, thing, to this stuff. This, this had to be the foundation of their faith and salvation. So he says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And the word has to do with having a clear conscience. In other words, it's not just someone who proclaims these things but doesn't live them, who says they believe them but really doesn't back it up with their life, or who gives a performance of things but God knows his heart is not right. That's what this idea of clear conscience is, a pure conscience. That God does not condemn him for what he believes or what he lives. And so he lives as a believer, a true believer of Christ, with a clear conscience before God, not trying to deceive himself that he is something that he's really not. So this is this test of spiritual maturity. And this is a true believer and a follower of Christ, and they live that way no matter where they are or who's around. Okay? Now, look at verse 10. He goes on. He says, let, all the, let these also be first proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found. What's the word? Blameless. Remember that word from the elders? Not being able to be accused of wrongdoing as a pattern of his life. And he says, these men who have to qualify to be the office of deacon have to fit that same word, blameless. Okay? Now, 
the first part of verse 10 says, let these also first be proved. That means they have to be tested. There's a time factor here. You don't have somebody come into the church and everybody goes, yeah, we think he's a great person. Let's make him a deacon or an elder for that matter. You have to get to know him. And over time, you see the condition of his life. You see his family life, which we're going to look at in a minute. You see his outside reputation. You see how he responds to crises. You see how he comes and fellowships and relates to people in the church. So you get to know the man, not just in his performance, but in his person. And that's what this means when it says he must be proved. There's a time factor that's included here. And again, it, it's looking at the man and judging him overall. And by the way, I use that word judging in the right context, not as, oh, he, he doesn't tie his shoes the right way or he wears the wrong color pants, okay? That's the wrong kind of judging. We are supposed to judge people by their works and by their fruit. And God says, we are to look at them, and by their fruit you shall know them. And here we are judging people in the right way, where whether they meet these qualifications or not. Okay? And here he says they must be blameless, and it takes time to get there, to that point where we can understand that and see that God has done his work in their life so that they are ready and qualified to take on this position. Now, here's a great fallacy that I want to debunk right now. The great fallacy is this, that deacons are deacons because they're not good enough to be elders. They're not spiritual enough to be elders. And so you look at people in the church, you go, oh, well, yeah, he doesn't qualify to be an elder. Look at his life. But, oh, we'll make him a deacon instead. Maybe that'll fix him. Okay, that's not the solution. And that's what Paul's saying. They have to be proved first. They have to meet these qualifications. It's not that we choose the least spiritual people to put in this position because they're not going to hurt anybody spiritually as they clean the toilets, right? And again, that's the wrong idea of a deacon. What he's saying here is these people that are in this position of deacon have great influence in the church. And remember, the first seven that were chosen that were the forerunners of deacon we're full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. That's what Paul said. Those are the kind of men we need. So it's not somebody who's not spiritual, and hopefully, eventually, they'll change and get good enough, and then we can make them an elder. Okay? These are spiritually mature people that God has appointed specifically for service within the church. All right? And remember, I'm just going to give you two examples of Stephen and Philip again. You want to look at what a deacon... The, the example that we have, Stephen doing great wonders and miracles, preaching the gospel, Philip the evangelist. Okay, so there's your picture of deacon that Paul is trying to give us here. A spiritually mature person, not lower than an elder, just a different function because the qualifications are exactly the same except that he doesn't have to teach. Okay? He goes on. We're going to move to verse 11. Now, verse 11 uh, we're going to skip this morning because we're going to come back to that next week. And it says, let the woman learn. In, I'm, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Okay, I'm in chapter 2. It says, even so must their lives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. We'll talk about women next week. So verse 12 goes back to deacons. It says, let the deacons be husbands of one wife. Again, we talked about that as far as elders. Same qualification. Okay, and it has to do with their moral purity 
if they're married or if they're not. Their right treatment and attitude toward women, and especially if they're married, their one-woman mindset as far as their dedication to their marriage. Okay, So all of that's encompassed in this husband of one wife in verse 12. And then it says, ruling their children and their own house as well. And we talked about that last week for, for elders. Their house has to be under control. So all of these qualifications that we see for deacons, again, are exactly what we have for elders, except they don't have to teach. So Paul's saying these men that are dedicated as servants, specifically in the church, have to be spiritually minded, have to be spiritually mature. Their home life has to be marked by spiritual maturity and diligent teaching and discipline of their children so that they qualify in order to serve as examples in the church of God. So all of these qualifications must be there. So the idea of a deacon is not just, oh, well, you know, he's some guy who wants to help out, so let's make him a deacon. Paul says it's mature people, spiritually mature people. It's people that you have had time to get to know or who have, you've gotten testimony from enough people that you trust them. You can see in their life God's working. Okay? And then he goes on in verse 13, and here's the reward for those people who serve in the office of deacon. He says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. God rewards those people that faithfully serve him. And he specifically here will give a reward to those who are able, through the strength of God in their life, to serve as a deacon well in the church. He says they purchase for themselves a good degree. This good degree means a standing, a, a status, if you will, but it's not just a, a facade or a social status. It is a respect that is earned from the people that they're serving. And, and you understand what I'm talking about here. You know, I was telling my wife, and I think I may have mentioned it here, we were talking about some issue, and a leader is not somebody who has to keep going around reminding people that they're the leader. If a leader has to keep reminding people that they're the leader, they're not a leader. Okay? A leader is someone who inspires people to follow them through their example. And if they can't do that, they're not a leader. Because a leader leads and people follow. A leader does not get behind people and push them. That's not how a leader works. And that's what God's saying here. Deacons are spiritual leaders in the church. They demonstrate their leadership through their service, specifically, in how they serve the church. And that service can include whatever is necessary to keep the church functioning. It can include cleaning the toilets and vacuuming the carpets. Okay, Many churches, the deacons help serve the communion Serving tables, coming right from Acts chapter 6, right? Okay, so that part of it. But it's basic service within the church. Whatever needs to be done, that's what a deacon does. The difference between them and the elders, the deacons aren't teaching and preaching because they're not given those speaking gifts. But they're still leaders by example through their service. So he says, if you've done this, if you faithfully execute this position of being a deacon, then you gain this respect, you gain this, this 
status, if you will, of people looking up to you as a spiritual leader because of your Christian testimony and integrity. And then the secondary possible application here is that it could mean that people who serve in this capacity well and demonstrate their spiritual maturity may qualify then for elder because people will see their lives. And if they are gifted with teaching and people just haven't recognized it until this point, that's a great training ground for an elder, wouldn't you say? First, be a servant. Because that's the attitude that elders should have. So he says, they gain this good degree for themselves, but then he says, and great boldness in the faith. Now, every time you look at this word boldness about the faith, almost every time in Scripture it refers to someone who is preaching the gospel in boldness. And who are those that are preaching the gospel in churches? The elders. So it's a very good possibility. He's not just talking about just this respect that they earn among the people. It is this, we're going to consider you being an elder because you've fulfilled all of these qualifications and if God has gifted you to teach, we should recognize that. Now, with that said, not all deacons will become elders because not all deacons are gifted with the gift of teaching and preaching and pastoring. Okay, that was specific as we looked at elders, two elders. But the spiritual qualifications is, are the same. So the difference between the elders and the deacons then is their service in the church. That's it. The elders lead through teaching, through preaching, through exhortation. The deacons lead through service, whatever needs to be done. So what did we look at, learn about, from de, about deacons today? I'm going to wrap it up here. Number one, deacons are an official position in the church. Paul defines it, 1 Timothy chapter 3. He calls them deacons. And he says there's qualifications you have to meet. Number two, what is their function? To serve. What does that look like? Whatever the church needs. And we should be willing as deacons to do that. Here's the point. And I reminded you this at the beginning. I want to remind you at the end because this is the main point. It's not so much about what the man does as what he is. That's why we have qualifications and no specific functions. He shouldn't be appointed as a position of deacon or elder if they don't meet the qualifications. And so we have to look at what a man is first. And that will determine, that's from where this action comes from, out of his character. So what a man is, is more important than what a man does. And that's the main focus of 1 Timothy 3, both in the qualifications for elders and in deacons. We have to look at what the man is. Above everything else in the church, we must be growing spiritually and appoint, to those, appoint those in leadership who have demonstrated spiritual maturity as the rule of their lives. The people who are the officers, I don't know if you want to call officers, the leaders of the church, the deacons, the elders, have to be examples for everyone else to follow. And so when we look at all of this, this is something we should all be striving for because this is the model of what Christ says Christians are. That's why they're leaders, helping other people to see the example of their lives and follow after them as they follow after Christ. That's what Paul said about himself. So, it's true for elders and deacons. What a man is, 
is more important than what he does. His activity is important, but his activity will come out of the right heart. That's why we evaluate people for positions in the church. So whether you're serving or teaching, the condition of your heart is the most important aspect of your ministry. That's the message we get from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to stop there. So let's have a word of prayer as we close this morning. And then next week, we will look at the the ministry of women in the church. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and giving us your word. And we know that it is truth. We know that we can rely on it to tell us everything that we need to know that you want revealed to us. And Lord, it is a lifetime endeavor to understand just what you've given to us. We can't even imagine those things that you have withheld, that you are still keeping secret, that we may come to understand as we get to heaven, but that we will take an eternity to learn. And so, Lord, we just praise you for giving us this instruction today. Help us to follow your word, to follow your truth as we function within the church so that we can honor you and do things the way that you say we should. Lord, we want you to be preeminent in all that's done. And so we lift up your name today. We exalt you and we give you the glory. We look forward to what you're going to do in the future and just help us to be submissive to your will and your work. We thank you. I pray that you would go with us now with your blessing and your provision. Protect us with your power and bring us back together according to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.